baptized with water. He said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Well, where's John? He sees it now. come verse 2. We're going to come back to it actually. It ties into my lesson. So glad you picked that one. This is the third class of a seven-week class on God's gift, holy baptism, sacrament of holy baptism. And we've spent the last two sessions kind of talking about the theology that is that is underneath everything which Lutherans believe and teach. Um, the necessity that baptism is the vitae spiritualis janua, it's the door of the spiritual life, and that what makes you a Christian? Baptism. Baptism is that which brings us through the door and places us in the life of God. And we ended last class with looking at Luther's small catechism and the teaching of the church. And, and, and we talked about before that this Latin word traditor where we get two English words from. Uh, does anyone remember the two English words we get from traditor? Traitor. Traitor. And tradition. And tradition. That's right. So the idea, uh, traditor, is to hand over something. And uh, those who hand over that which Christ handed down to the apostles and the apostles handed down to us, we are handing over the traditor, the, the tradition. But those that hand over something other than what Christ handed down, well, they're traitors. Right? They're not handing over that which is faithful. They're actually handing over something different, which makes them a traitor. And the point is, we're all traditors in our homes and in the church. We're all, we're all handing down something. You, ha you have to. The question is, what are you going to hand down? Are you going to hand down the scriptures and that which Christ calls us to and be faithful or are you going to be swayed by the ways of the world or by human reason and believe something else and, and hand over something else to your children so we looked at Luther's catechism and him faithfully handing over what he had received and what the church has received this teaching on baptism one last thing I wanted to touch on because it came up the very end of last class and um, I spent a couple of weeks thinking about it and I thought you know that's probably worth a little bit more explanation there was a question raised in Luther's catechism about uh, the relationship of baptism and faith and and there seemed to be a little bit of confusion about where faith comes from so I want to just visit that real quick if, if, if you remember these kind of three drawings, and we talked about the church is confused, and there's kind of three different teachings within the church at large about baptism, where it comes from. Baptism is either something that man does as, as man's work to show God that he believes, or baptism is kind of sort of this like 50-50 Thing where it's 
kind of your choice, but but God infuses grace, and, and he does give grace, and it is a sacrament, but yet it's still dependent on you working with it in some way. And then and then there's the teaching, which is, is our teaching, that baptism is completely God's work. It's, it's 100% God's action to save us. Um, but I want to run the same thing through with the idea of faith. Where does faith come from? Now, there was a uh, man in the 4th century hit by the name of Pelagius. Has anyone ever heard of Pelagius? Timothy's nodding. Pelagius was a, a, a pastor, and he was actually born in 354. This is how you spell his name. Pelagius, born in 354. Pelagius was known for one thing in particular. He was known for saying that salvation is a matter of human choice. And he was kind of the first one to come along with this teaching that, that when it comes to salvation, it's up to you to decide. You gotta make the choice. You have a free will and you decide when you wanna follow God and your decision is what puts you through the door. Um, so Pelagius is here. This is Pelagius' view of faith. Where does faith come from? You. You got to make the choice. Does this make sense? Guess who was born the same year as Pelagius in 354? A man by the name of Augustine. And Augustine and Pelagius <laughs> were on completely different ends here on this question. Augustine argues with Pelagius his whole life long. Where does Augustine say faith must come from? God. Faith is a divine work. It comes from God alone. You can't take any credit for your faith because you are dead in your sins and trespasses. You can't make a good choice. You're fully depraved. You're totally depraved. How can we base such a, such a wonderful, mighty responsibility on man? No, Augustine goes here. Faith is the work of God. Completely different ends of the spectrum. So the church settles this, actually, in the Council of Carthage, 418. They condemn Pelagius. They say, Pelagius, your views are heretical to the Christian faith. You're a traitor. You're not passing down what the scriptures have given to us. And Pelagius is marked as a heretic, and he dies that same year, 418. Now, Augustine goes on to live. Now, if we look at our three categories, the church will sometimes talk about the people who believe that baptism is man's work will also believe that faith is man's work, and we call them Pelagian. They're Pelagian in their thinking. You think salvation is a matter of human choice. That was already condemned 1,600 years ago by the church. Now, these people we call semi-Pelagian, right? You didn't quite kick them out all the way out of the door, guys. Like, you kind of did, but you're still putting emphasis on human works. Lutherans were anti-Pelagian through and through. Pelagius has no place in our theology. Faith is a divine work. So to that end, I wanted to share this writing from Luther. 
that I came across the other day, and I thought, that is it in a nutshell. Faith is a divine work. And he's, he's writing this in response to a wonderful passage we have in 1 Peter chapter 5, where uh, Peter writes, I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So Luther writes, God has assuredly promised his grace to the humble, 1 Peter 5, 5. That is, to those who lament and despair of themselves. But no man can be thoroughly humbled until he knows that his salvation is utterly beyond his own powers, devices, endeavors, will, and works, and depends entirely on the choice, will, and work of another, namely, of God alone. For as long as he is persuaded that he himself can do, can do even the least thing toward his salvation, he retains some self-confidence and does not altogether despair of himself. And therefore he is not humbled before God, but presumes that there is, or at least hopes or desires that there may be, some place, time, and work for him by which he may at length attain to salvation. But when a man has no doubt that everything depends on the will of God, then he completely despairs of himself and chooses, chooses nothing for himself but simply waits for God to work. Then he has come close to grace and can be saved. So where does faith come from for Lutherans? God alone. God alone. And this is why you've probably all heard of Augustine, because Augustine was faithful. He was handing down the tradition of the apostles, handing down the tradition of the church, which the church said, Augustine's right. That's why most of you haven't heard of Pelagius, because he was labeled a heretic, a traitor, trying to pass down something else, trying to elevate man and say that you've got the power, which sounds a lot like arrogance. It leads you to think that you have a part to play. And the most important thing ever, 
salvation. This is God's work. So, wanted to touch on that briefly. Any questions about that? All right, let's open up our scriptures to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. We're going to look at the Gospels today. Next week, we're going to jump into the Epistles um, and then maybe Revelation as well. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Um, This conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus, you can can divide this conversation into three segments. Um, When Jesus says, Amen, Amen, I say unto you, he says it three times. Look at verse 3. Look at verse 5. And look at verse 11. We see this repeated refrain from Christ. Truly, truly, I say unto you. Or amen, amen, I say unto you. So we're going we're gonna to kind of look at each of the section on its own terms and then relate it to the other ones. But, but in a sense, you have kind of three mini conversations in the midst of this one conversation with Nicodemus. And, and, and the overall point here that I kind of want to lay before you is... In, in, in John's gospel, this is the first teaching discourse of Jesus. This is the first time that he's teaching. The question is, is it received or is it rejected? That's what I want you to think about as we read. Is the teaching of Christ received, passed over, received, and then faithfully will be passed on from here, or is this teaching rejected, thrown away by Nicodemus? Okay? So, let's look at the very first few verses here. John 3, verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one who can do these things, who can do these signs that you do, unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Okay, so verse 2, we're told about Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews. And then we're given this interesting detail. He comes by night. Secretly. He comes in the night, secretly. Now, you might wonder why that detail. Maybe it's, maybe, it's, maybe it's just a random detail that's not there for any reason, or maybe there's something to it. We tend to think there's something to it because look at John 19, verse 39. John 19, 39, the same gospel... Nicodemus comes back up, and we're told in verse 39, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, (laughs) so we're reiterating that this man comes by night. It seems to be an important detail about this conversation. He comes by night. So, So then we start to wonder, well, why is this important? Why is it important that Nicodemus, we are told twice, 
that he comes by night. Well, you're in John's gospel. So John is the, is the gospel that loves to use metaphor. And what's the common metaphor he loves to play on? Light and darkness. Look at how he begins his gospel. John chapter 1, verse uh, 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then look at John um, 8, verse 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so what's going on here in, in John 3, 2? Well, I think we're being told that Nicodemus comes by night because remember our symbolism, the picture of the door? Where's Nicodemus? On the outside, yeah. He's on the outside. And Jesus, who is the light of the world, <laughs> we see this interaction between the two. So Nicodemus comes by night. I think that's important. And we have the picture of the door in front of us. Nicodemus is here, and, but, but he's talking to the door himself. Jesus, who is the door, who is the light of the world. The question is, is will Nicodemus receive it? Or will he reject it? So we carry on with the conversation. Uh, Nicodemus calls Jesus a rabbi, and he says, we know you're a teacher, come from God. And so <clears throat> it seems that he is honoring Jesus rightly. He is, he is recognizing that Jesus is a rabbi and a teacher. <laughs> but then Jesus' Jesus's response to him, Amen, amen, I say to you, unless one is born from above, cannot see the kingdom of God. Doesn't that just seem like out of left field to anyone else? Like, Nicodemus didn't say anything. He didn't ask anything. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes out of the gate saying, unless you're born from above, you cannot see the kingdom of God, Nicodemus. Where is that coming from? It might seem a little bit out of left field, but, but, look, but look at John, John 1, 24, 25. You see, Jesus knows what the Pharisees have been talking about. He knows kind of what the sticking point is. John 1, 24, we're told, they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked, why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? What are the Pharisees interested in? Well, yes. They are wondering about baptism. They are highly interested in issues concerning baptism. They don't know what to make of this whole baptism thing. And so they're very on edge about baptism. And Jesus knows this about the Pharisees. He's already encountered them because he's already gone to John and, been, and received his baptism. And the, fair, the people who sent by the Pharisees were there. And they're asking all these questions about baptism. Scriptures tell us in one twenty four. They asked him, why are you baptizing? You're not the Christ, you're not Elijah, you're not the prophet. John answered them, I'm baptizing with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. 
these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So this is why Jesus responds to Nicodemus in this way, we believe. He knew that Nicodemus had questions about baptism, like all the Pharisees. They're all wound up about one thing. And so Jesus goes right to, right, cuts right to the heart of it. Now look at John 1, 32 to 34. John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven, so the Spirit from above, like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. So where was John in John 1? I myself did not know him. He's in the darkness. I did not know him, John says, but I saw the Spirit remain on him. He who sent me to baptize with water, he said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Where's John? He sees it now. I saw it, and now I bear witness. Jesus is the Son of God. He saw the Spirit descend from above, and he heard the voice from the, from the cloud say, He whom you see the Spirit descend, he is the Son of God. And he bears witness to it now. So John is through the door. Nicodemus, though, we're still unsure. But the point is, John sees and believes. Now, to see, see, Jesus says, I say unto you, unless one is born again, or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We're not talking about, like, the physical act of seeing, right? There's something more to, to see here. It's not a matter of obtaining, like, a greater depth of insight or spiritual discernment or this cognitive sense of things. To see meant, simply means to receive. He received that which he saw. To see means to believe. They go together. Look at John 5, 37. When you see, you believe, you bear witness. They all go together. You, you receive what... What, who the Lord is, and now you cannot help but bear witness about who the Lord is. John 5, 37. The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice, so Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, his voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in, in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If anyone comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. 
But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Will Nicodemus receive him? So, now, before we move to the next section of the conversation, it's important to know John 3, 3. We read that, John 3, 3. Amen, amen, I say unto you, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, the church from the earliest of times has always understood baptism to be necessary for salvation. Uh, Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, wrote, Without baptism, salvation is obtainable by no one. And in our own Lutheran confessions, we pass this down as well. We say concerning baptism, Article 9, it is taught that it is necessary. Grace is offered through it, and that one should also baptize infants and children who through such baptism are entrusted to God and become his children and are pleasing to him. Rejected are the Anabaptists who teach that the baptism of children is not right. The church has always taught this. Why? Well, Jesus says, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then he'll say again in verse 5, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, we're going to be talking about birth, um, to be born from above, or to be born again. We're talking about new birth, new life. The question is, is how is that done? How, how is one born from above? How is one born of God? How is this? John 1.11 has already answered this. Look at John 1.11 through 13. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him, but to all who do receive him, he who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is why, in Savior of the Nations Come, what does Ambrose write? No man's power of mind or blood, but the Spirit of our God. Oh, I lost my three drawings. It's not by man's power that we're born again. It's solely by the power of God that one is born again. Born from above. Not the will of the flesh. It is not the will of man. It's not by your choice, Pelagius. It's solely by God. 100% grace. Grazia prima. Grace alone. This is the teaching of the church. It always has been. That, that we receive life by God's grace alone. Not by our works or merit. Okay, second section of the conversation. So we're going to see if Nicodemus is receiving this or he's rejecting it. So we get Nicodemus' response, verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother womb and be born? So Nicodemus in the dark or in the light? Still very much in the darkness. He does not get it. He's relying on human reasoning. And he's thinking, well, that doesn't make sense can't be born again physically um, and he's stuck on this right and he's a Pharisee he's been doing a lot of thinking about baptism so he's been doing a lot of thinking about this and he's concluded that it cannot be 
Why is it, what's he relying on? His own mind. His own mind. The will of man. Right? His own flesh cannot comprehend it. And you have this beautiful picture of the darkness of man meeting the light of Christ. And so he's stuck. He says, how can, can you enter your mother's womb and be born a second time? And Jesus answers him. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born from above, born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So now Jesus brings in a discussion of water. He says, unless one is born from above with water and spirit, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Look at Ezekiel 36. Pharisee would know his Old Testament very well. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27 God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. You will be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and to be careful to obey my rules. Look at Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44, verses 1 through 5. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, and who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jerusalem, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land, streams on the dry ground. And I will pour my spirit upon your offspring, my blessing on your descendants. And they shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. Look at Ezekiel 47, back to Ezekiel. Jesus is tying in water in the Spirit, as the Old Testament does. And look at um, Ezekiel um, explain the temple, describe the temple to us. He brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, and the water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east, and behold, water was trickling out on the south side. And going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was knee deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was waist deep. Again, he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. 
And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish, for this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everyone will live where the river goes. The temple and water go together, water and spirit, hold the thought. John's gospel, what does Jesus say about the temple? Where is the temple? According to Jesus. John chapter 2. Look at John 2, 18 to 22. The Jews said, What sign do you show us to do these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? Where are they? Uh, you can't. It took 46 years, Jesus. Uh, you're not going to raise this up in three days. Guarantee it. And we're told. He was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. But they didn't understand it then either, the disciples. No. Not then. No. <laughs> no, you don't, you don't get it. No one understands no. it. No. That's right. Brian, you had a question. Wouldn't Nicodemus have been pretty well versed in these Old Testament yes. scriptures? Yes. To have even at least had an inclination of water and spirit and how it was read in the Old Testament, but still just completely blind. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus is Jesus is the temple who is born from above. The Spirit of God descended on him in the waters. He's the temple. Right? The Spirit's on him. He's the Messiah. You say, Nicodemus, do you see it? Like John saw it. Do you see it? The temple of God is standing right in front of him, and he doesn't see it. Remember back to John's account. I saw it. I did not know him, but I saw it, and I witnessed to you that he is the Son of God. See, Jesus is pointing Nicodemus to himself. Unless one is born of water and spirit, cannot enter. Cannot enter the kingdom of God. He's pointing Nicodemus to him. He's the one born of water and spirit. He's the one born from above. The word of God became flesh and has dwelt among us. He is the light that no darkness can overcome. Nicodemus still, what's he say? What's the next section? What's his response? Verse 9, Nicodemus says to him, How can these things be? Where's Nicodemus? Still stuck in the darkness. Still doesn't, how can it be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not get it? You don't understand? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So does Nicodemus receive the very first teaching of Jesus in John's gospel? 
No, as a definitive, no, he does not. Jesus says to him, you don't receive it. Verse 11. He's still standing there at the door wondering, what the heck is this door for? Exactly. Now compare, compare 11 to 134. Chapter 1, verse 34. John says, I have seen and I've borne witness that this is the Son of God. 311, we speak of what we know, bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. See, it all goes together. To see is to believe, to believe is to bear witness. It's because you received it. You didn't receive what we're bearing witness to you, so you don't believe. One other thing I wanted to point out, verse 12. This was so good when I saw this. Uh, Jesus is saying, if you don't receive earthly things, then how are you going to receive heavenly things? So he makes this distinction between earthly things and heavenly things. And Melito of Sardis, for those who come to the, the Good Friday service, you might have heard of Melito. He's a, an early church pastor. It's one of the first sermons we have outside of the New Testament, his sermon he preached um, on Easter. And we have this saying from Melito, um, what's the earthly things? Melito says, that's the law. The heavenly things, that's the gospel. He, said, he has this quote, the earthly things are perishable, the Torah and all the law. The heavenly things are imperishable, the decree of the gospel, the salvation of the Lord. And look at the beginning of John's gospel. Look at John 1, 17. The law was through, given through who? Moses. But grace and truth come through Jesus. What's the thing that is going to be put away with in Christ? The law. It will be put away with. He will fulfill it, accomplish all of its purposes. What's the thing that will remain? The good news. Grace. Jesus Christ. Forgiveness of your sins. And, and Jesus is pointing Nicodemus again and again to that. If you don't receive these heavenly things, Moses spoke of me and you don't even read him, then how will you receive this? Now the question is, does Nicodemus eventually receive the Lord's teaching? Well, not here in chapter 3, but look at 1939 again. Nicodemus comes back up. After Jesus is crucified and buried, we're told in 39, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So he's there taking care of Jesus' corpse. Did Jesus pull him through the door? I guess we'll find out one day. I wanted to end with this beautiful... At least I guess he was looking at the door where the rest of the Pharisees wouldn't even look at That's right. That's right. One thing I wanted to end with is this beautiful poem that I um, wanted to share on baptism by James Matthew Wilson. It's called Through the Water. Through the Water. And, and, and keep that Ezekiel passage in mind of the man walking through the water. And if you're not a poem person, just indulge me for a little bit. 
Through the Water by James Matthew Wilson. Far back within the mansion of our thought, we glimpse a lintel with a door that's shut, and through which all our lives would seem to lead, though we feel powerless to say toward what. It is the place where all the shapes we know give way to whispers in a gnawing gut. And so in childhood we duck beneath the waterfall into a hidden cove, in summer pass within a stand of pines, cut off from those bright fields in which we rove, whose needles lay a softening bed of silence, whose great boughs tightly weave a sacred grove. When winter settles in and our skies darken, we take a trampled path by pond and wood and find beneath an arch of slumbering thorn stray tufts of fur, a skull stripped of its hood. Then turn and look down through the thickening ice and wonder at the strangeness of the good. And Peter, Peter, falling through that plain where he had only cast his nets before and where behemoth stalked in darkest depths that sank and sank as if there were no floor, he cried out to the wind and felt a hand that clutched and bore his weight back to the shore. We know that we must fall into such waters, must lose ourselves within their breathless power, until we are raised up, hair drenched, eyes stinging, by one who says to us that from this hour we have passed through, we're dead but have returned, and are a new creation come to flower. Oh man, that is so good, guys. That is gold. Read that one to your children. James Matthew Wilson. Let's end with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever.